I really enjoy going to the cinema. I'm a fan of Colin Firth, and I'm also a fan of films with happy endings. So a couple of years ago, I went to see Colin Firth in a film called The Railway Man. I don't know how many of you have actually seen it. It's set after the Second World War, and it's about an ex-British Army officer, who's Colin Firth, um, who was badly treated as a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp. And he learns that the Japanese guard, who was the princi his principal tormentor, is still alive, and he travels back to confront him. The film is billed as a film about reconciliation, and ultimately there is indeed a very moving reconciliation that did come about between the two of them in the closing scene. But the thing that stayed with me about the film is how costly and hard it was for both of those men to be reconciled to one another. The film doesn't skirt around the wrongs that were done or the pain that it had caused. Both men's lives were changed forever by the events of war. And that encounter between the two of them was a really tough one. Their ultimate reconciliation took a lot of courage actually, on both of their parts. The film might have had a happy ending, but it was at great personal cost. And so we come today to the last of our sermon series on Abraham and Sons, and we leave the story of Abraham's rather dysfunctional family on the happy ending note, the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Now, we live in a world where our own relationships are often broken, so it's always nice to have stories with happy endings and relationships restored. But today I'd like to concentrate on some of the tough things that both Jacob and Esau needed to do in order to make that reconciliation possible. I want to see how that might inform any broken relationships that we might have. And broken relationships aren't just between people. Um, they are also between ourselves and God. And so we'll be taking a look at where this story takes us in the bigger picture of God's salvation plan, reconciling us to him. But first we need to do just a bit of a recap on the story. Jacob, the younger brother, had lied and cheated his elder brother Esau out of his rightful inheritance many years ago. Jacob had run away but in the meantime, he prospered. He gained a great number of cattle and other animals, along with two wives, two concubines, and 11 children. But he was a very flawed character still. He wanted to make peace with his brother, but he thought that he might be able to buy him off with extravagant gifts of livestock. His relationship with God was patchy, to say the least, even manipulative at times. However, to those of us who were here last week, we will remember that something very significant happened to Jacob immediately before the story that we read today. He had a mysterious face-to-face -face encounter with God, wrestling with him as with another man. It was mysterious, but it was also a defining moment in Jacob's life. He was a changed man afterwards. No longer was he fearful of the brother that he had wronged but could not control. 
And we'll see that, how that plays out in our passage today. God blessed Jacob, and he changed his very name. Instead of the name Jacob, which means deceiver, God renamed him Israel. And in the blessing and the name change, there was an implicit forgiveness and a fresh start for Jacob. He carried the effects of that encounter with God for the rest of his life, physically in the form of a limp, spiritually in a much greater dependence on God. And in that wrestling with God, he realized his own weakness and God's strength. And so we come to our story today and Jacob's meeting or confrontation with Esau. Having met with God face to face, Jacob was prepared to meet with his brother, a brother who was advancing to meet him with 400 men. Jacob took the initiative, first in a move that showed great courage and also great vulnerability. Jacob walked on ahead of his family to meet his brother alone. We see that right at the beginning of the chapter. Secondly, he implicitly acknowledged his wrongdoing, that of robbing Esau of his rightful position and privileges as an older brother. He acknowledges that by humbly prostrating himself on the ground seven times. It was a bit of a symbolic gesture, but it was a gesture of total submission, and Esau would have known what that meant. And lastly, He tries to make amends for the wrongs that he'd done by pleading with Esau to accept the gifts of his cattle. Not a bad strategy for trying to repair a relationship, is it? But don't underestimate how courageous and risky it was. Jacob stood to lose everything, including his life. He didn't know whether his brother was coming to meet him in anger or in peace. This was a very different Jacob from the scheming entrepreneur that we've seen in previous pages of Genesis, hedging his bets, ducking and diving, living by his wits. He was finally facing up to his actions and asking his brother's forgiveness. I think we can learn from Jacob's actions here. So often in broken relationships, we tend to self-justify. We tend to sort of try and shift the blame a little bit. Instead of maybe taking an honest look at ourselves and our actions from the perspective of the other person. I know that I do. Saying sorry and genuinely meaning it, trying to make amends, it sounds really simple, but actually it's an incredibly hard thing to do. Why? Well, one very simple reason is our pride. We don't want to eat humble pie by admitting we're wrong. But another powerful reason, I suspect, is fear. What if the other person doesn't accept our apology? What then? Well, we learn relatively little about Esau from Genesis, but this single encounter says a tremendous amount about him. Somewhere along the line, Esau has changed too, 
changed from that angry young man that we saw in earlier chapters of Genesis, robbed of his rightful birthright and threatening to kill his deceitful brother. Someone that Jacob had to run from. And he's turned into a man who runs to the man that had wronged him. He embraces him with tears in his eyes. I suspect that God must have been working in Esau's heart as well, although the Bible is silent on that score. Esau has a graciousness that accepts Jacob's gifts of restitution, and in so doing, Esau is actually admitting that, acknowledging that original wrongdoing, but he doesn't go out of his way to humiliate Jacob further by refusing his gifts, even if he, Esau, doesn't actually need them. We can learn from Esau's actions if we ourselves are people who have been wronged. Reconciliation has to be a two-way process. Both the wrongdoer and the wronged need to reach out to one another. If Jacob's was a hard path to take, Esau's path was actually pretty difficult too. He had to let go of a lifetime of holding a grudge against his brother, even if it was a justifiable one. At the end of the passage, Jacob and Esau part amicably. Too much had happened in the past for them to stay together, and they were probably wise to acknowledge that and go their separate ways. They had, however, become reconciled, even if their relationship was not all that it had been before. And for us, too, it isn't always possible to turn the clock right back in relationships. And mending a broken relationship doesn't necessarily mean that it will go back exactly to where it was. The next, and in fact the last time, we see Jacob and Esau together in Genesis, they are burying their father Isaac together. They were probably never going to be best mates, but they were united in a common task. And why should we even try to embark on this risky business of mending broken relationships, fraught as it is with the fear of rejection and further hurt. I wonder if, as we've been looking at this passage, it's rung any bells to you. It's reminded you of another story, a story that Jesus told of two sons, in some ways, Jesus' story has striking similarities. There's an elder son and a younger son, elder brother, younger brother. The younger brother wrongs his father and elder brother by forcing the sale of part of the family farm and disappearing with the proceeds. However, unlike Jacob, the younger brother doesn't prosper, and after squandering his father's property, he eventually decides to return home and ask his father's forgiveness. But in Jesus' story, it's the father who comes running to meet his prodigal son, embracing him and weeping with joy, as Esau did. It's the father who unconditionally forgives the younger brother 
welcoming him back into the family, turning the clock back as though he had never sinned. And it's the elder brother who can't find it in his heart to forgive, and so he excludes himself from the family feasting and celebration. When we look at this parable of Jesus, the parable of the lost sons, we see the reason why it is so worth our while to embark on this risky path of reconciliation. Jesus told this parable with two main purposes in mind. Firstly, he told it to illustrate the depths of his heavenly Father's love to us. Because I think we can all identify with that younger son, the son that wanted to go his own way and had completely messed up in the process. I mean, I think we've all been there to some degree or other. But in this parable, we can feel the Father's longing to forgive and to restore. As I said, I'm a great fan of films, and um, I won't say too much about this one. A film that we saw recently, The Lady in the Van, I don't know how many of you have seen it, uh, about an eccentric um, lady who um, fetches up at Alan Bennett's house and lives there in a van on his front drive for 15 years. Miss Shepherd, the lady in the van, was tortured by the memory of something in her past that she felt that she hadn't been forgiven for, in spite of her continuously asking God for forgiveness. And much of her eccentric behavior stemmed from that feeling of not being fully forgiven. Not being reconciled can have a tremendously damaging effect on us. Uh, The film actually has a rather fanciful happy ending that I won't spoil if you haven't already seen it. But there's a second reason Jesus told this parable. It's the parable of the lost sons, plural. Because at the end of the parable, it's arguably the elder brother who is the lost one, missing out on the party because he couldn't let go of his grudge against his brother. The father didn't exclude him. On the contrary, he went outside and begged him to come in. But the elder son excluded himself. Now, there's a picture by Rembrandt of that famous scene, which I guess a number of you will be familiar with. Just have a look at the relationship between the father and the younger son. The younger son with his torn shoes, his utter poverty, the love and the compassion of the father but also the careworn and weary expression on his face. Reconciliation is costly. That father had a lifetime of waiting for his son to come home. But the cost of non-reconciliation is also high. Have a look at the elder son, um, illuminated on the right-hand side, his face illuminated on the right-hand side of the picture. He stands apart... He stands also a little higher than his father and with his fine clothes as if in judgment actually on both of them. 
we just look at the expression on his face, it's conflicted. There's a tremendous sadness about the way that Rembrandt has painted him. I think it's very appropriate that we end our series on Abraham and Sons with the story of reconciliation because we're about to celebrate Christmas, that time when God entered our world and became one of us in order to bring us back into relationship with him. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That reconciliation was hugely costly. Christ bore the ultimate rejection of humankind, misunderstood, betrayed by one of his followers, scorned, derided, and ultimately executed for a crime for which he was innocent. And all to enable us, in the messiness of our broken humanity, to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God becoming once more part of his family. So as we leave our series on Abraham and move into the Christmas season, keep that theme of costly reconciliation in mind. Because Jacob and Esau provide good models for reconciliation, whether you're the wrongdoer or the person wronged. Honesty and courage, humility, grace, generosity, forgiveness. They're all attributes that those two brothers displayed in negotiating that hard path to reconciliation. We live in the light of God's offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to us. It's an offer open to us all. If you've never taken up God's offer and you'd like to know more, and do have a word with me after the service. But for those who have experienced that forgiveness and reconciliation with God, Paul's letter to the Corinthians has a bit of a sting in its tail. Because after saying that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, he goes on to say, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. Paul is talking in the main about our helping people to be reconciled to God. But a tangible way of demonstrating God's forgiveness and reconciliation is to model it in our own lives, in being reconciled to one another. Mending relationships isn't easy. It takes courage and a good measure of God's grace. Christmas is a time when there can often be opportunities for reconciliation, especially within families. Whether we identify with Jacob or Esau, wrongdoer or wronged, we can all take something from this story to help us to be proactive in acts of reconciliation. So as I close, let's pray that that message may sink into our hearts today.